0: This morning before Alex begins a new sermon series, we wanted to tell you a bit of an update about this mission and vision process that we have been undergoing. One of the wonderful things about Courtright is that we have an amazing, passionate, and dedicated group of people here. People with ideas and energy and innovation. But at the same time, one of the things that I noticed when I joined staff almost six years ago was that while we share a common faith and love of Jesus and desire to serve him, it sometimes felt like we were being tossed about in the wind with no clear direction or purpose. And yes, let me be clear. Our common purpose has always been Jesus. He is the one we follow, the one we align with, the one we want to lead and guide us. We have always had Jesus in common, but the leadership knew that God calls groups of people to live their call to follow Jesus in particular ways in particular seasons. In 2017, with a desire to go after something together, the session and staff set a goal to see 80% of the congregation involved in regular Bible study. That fall, we had 140 people sign up for our community Bible study. It seemed like the whole church was in on this. Pastor Alex was all in, Session was all in, our Bible study leaders were on board, and we had this amazing response from the congregation. We saw what could happen when we were all in the boat rowing in the same direction together. Have you ever seen those dragon boats? Those really long skinny boats with 20 paddlers all paddling fast? It kind of felt like that. We saw what happened with this specific goal when we were all going in the same direction together, and we began to sense that the time had come for us to identify a clearer mission and purpose for Courtright, something broader and more comprehensive than a particular goal, something that we could aim for, something that reminded us of why we exist, something that we could use to help us decide what to do and even what not to do. So we began a process that has been more than two years in the making, seeking God's direction about clarifying our mission and how we might serve God in this season. Rather than just asking what we should do, we started asking, who do you want us to be? God, who do you want Courtright to be? How have you made us? In what ways are we particularly suited to partner with you in bringing your kingdom here in Guelph, in our neighborhood, as it is in heaven? So your leadership session and senior staff have spent many hours asking, considering, praying, discussing, praying some more, debating, discerning, and trying to answer that question of, God, who do you want us to be? So in a moment, I'll share with you the first phase of this discernment process, a new mission statement. But before I share that, I want to give the framework we used to help us understand what this mission statement is and what it isn't. And I'm going to explain the three terms that we used, mission, vision, and methods. So first of all, the mission statement is our purpose. It's our reason for existing. That's what we're gonna share with you this morning. It needs to be general enough to live out the greatest commandment that we share with churches around the world to love God and love neighbors. But it should also be particular so that it reflects who Courtright is, who Courtright has been, and who we are being called to be. A mission statement says why we exist and what we are aiming for today and what Courtright can still be working towards 20 years from now. So that's mission. Mission is like the compass point, the direction where we are headed. Vision is more specific and the statement describes how we are going to get there. It considers something like, okay, for the next five years or some amount of time, how are we going to live that mission out? How are we going to head towards that compass point? We might complete a vision statement. We might accomplish what we set out to do and develop new vision statements after that. Using our analogy, vision says the way we are going to that compass point at this time is to, for instance, we're going to travel by water to get there. And finally, the method is the practical things we are going to do in order to live the mission out and accomplish the vision. Method is what we offer, the programs we run, the tools we use. We don't exist for our methods. We exist for our mission. For instance, Sunday school is a method, not a mission. We don't just exist to run Sunday school. It's not our mission. But Sunday school is one way that we hope kids will learn about God and grow in Christian community. So it's a method or a tool that we use to accomplish a mission. The method says, we think the best way to get to that compass point traveling by water is to use a dragon boat with 20 paddlers. That's going to be our method. Or here's another example. For instance, if our mission is simply to make Guelph aware of Courtright, that wouldn't be altogether that exciting, I don't think, but let's just take that. If our mission is to make Guelph aware of Courtright, The vision is to present Courtright's name in as many ways as we can. That's how we're gonna do that. So the method we choose is we're gonna get an airplane with a banner behind it that's gonna broadcast Courtright's name all over the city of Guelph. That's gonna be our method. So mission, vision, method. The mission in that example was to make Guelph aware of Courtright. The vision said the way we're going to live this out is to present Courtright's name in as many ways as we can, and the method we chose was to present Courtright's name by flying it behind an airplane. Today, we are just going to be outlining our mission, the foundation on which Courtright and our individuals can build our effect build effective plans. Later we'll come to more vision and methods, but today we're starting with mission. We want to go deep with this so that we build our vision and methods on top of a solid foundation. So this morning, we present our mission statement. These words are simple, and yet each word was deliberately chosen and has piles of significance underneath. And that's what we're going to be unpacking together in this sermon series. So at Courtright, we believe God is calling us to be rooted in Jesus, growing as a community, and becoming trusted neighbors. I was in the room when we finally landed on these statements, and I totally teared up when these words were written on the board. Now, I don't expect that that necessarily happened for all of you this morning, (laughs) but the reason I was emotional was because it felt like, yes, this is the culmination of many discussions images that had come in listening prayer, of pages of chart paper that had been filled out trying to clarify our purpose, of our desire to reflect the DNA of Courtright, who we have been, but also to lean into who God is calling us to be, and it felt like we finally had landed. So it's our hope and aim over these next three weeks and beyond to bring you along to understand more of the weight and significance of these words to grow together in our understanding of who God is calling us to be, and that you will come to share the same conviction and passion that your leaders have for trying to honor God as we are rooted in Jesus, growing as a community, and becoming trusted neighbors. We are so excited to see what will happen with a direction, with a focus, when we are all in the boat paddling together. This church is bursting with passion, with commitment, with faith, desire, willingness, sincerity, and it's time to move together in the same direction to see who God leads us to become and how we might join his kingdom work in Guelph and beyond.
1: Thank you, Allison. And so today we start to talk about these three statements. You've seen that Session and our senior staff team have trusted that the Holy Spirit has led us to as a way of communicating without too much static or interference. but you can hear me, right? Okay. Where was I? <laughs> Start over. Okay. Today, we're going to consider what it means to be rooted in Jesus, the first of these three statements that make up our mission. And we're going to do that by looking at the historical account of two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So when Justin, Alice, and I met to talk about which passage in Scripture to choose for this first week of our vision series, we thought about John 15, where Jesus says, I am the vine, which was our call to worship today. That would have been an obvious example of being rooted in Christ. But when Session and senior staff did our visioning, we had two metaphors that I heard that kept coming up. One was organic, it was about growing in Christ, growing as a church, and that obviously lodged itself in the words that we chose for our mission statement. The other was about being on a journey together. Like these are both pretty commonplace images we have of the Christian life. 2 weeks ago I preached on Psalm 131, one of the Psalms of Ascent, and the next morning Judith and I were doing our devos together and Some of you know Lectio 365, and we were startled because that morning it started the two-week theme on pilgrimage, and I talked about pilgrimage, and so I've been thinking a lot about journeying and pilgrimaging, if that's the verb, with with Jesus. And I love stories, generally, about Jesus encountering people in their day-to-day lives. And so I chose a story that incorporates a journey that really is a kind of a pilgrimage, and focuses in on Jesus meeting two of his followers. And this, I think, reflects our life together in Christ and our rootedness in him. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, would you come among us? And we've just seen words on a screen that we have arrived at, we trust, with you leading us to that point. We're also now going to read words that are from your Holy Scripture. Now these could just be words. They could be nothing that changes us, that moves us, that impacts us, but we ask that you would do what you do, which is to wake us up to your presence. That you would point us to Jesus. That you would warm our hearts, and that you would show us the path that you have laid out for us through the ministry of your word. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn to Luke 24. The nice thing about having a Bible with you is you can see what comes right before and what comes right after, which is sometimes really important. The words will be on the screen also, We're going to read from the Gospel according to Luke, this story of Jesus that Luke tells, good news, Gospel, verses 13 to 35. Now that same day, two of them, two of these disciples, these followers of Jesus, were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but did not find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they also did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. There they found the eleven and those with them, assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Lily, could you grab my water over there? It's right at the bottom of my chair. I forgot to bring it up. This is my daughter, Lily. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be in trouble afterwards. <laughs> so, here in Luke 24, we watch on as Jesus encounters two of his followers, and they do not recognize him. So, it creates this kind of awkwardness, this tension, but an opportunity for resolution also. And we're going to consider this passage in four parts. First of all, we see that they're confused by all the things they've experienced since the death of Jesus. Then we see Jesus correct their misunderstanding of who he is, who he stands for, and what all the scriptures mean. Next, they experience this amazing conversion when he breaks bread with them and they recognize him. And then finally, they reflect on all of it as a community, as companions traveling back to the city and with their friends with whom they're reunited in Jerusalem. So first of all, confusion. Secondly, correction. Third, conversion. And finally, community in Jesus. So here in Luke 24 we meet these two followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, which was a village not far from Jerusalem. It's the third day since Jesus was executed, and the two of them are deep in discussion about the things that had happened. Maybe they're arguing a bit. Maybe they're asking questions just based on their perplexity. Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize him. It even says they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus asks them, what are you talking about? They stop, their faces downcast, and we realize that they're heartbroken. They also cannot believe Jesus has not heard the news about himself, about his own death. And you start to see this is at least a little humorous. Jesus does not let on who he is, but he asks simply, what things? And so the two of them describe Jesus as a great prophet who preached the most incredible sermons and who healed people and turned people's lives around. But they don't call him Lord. They call him dead. And they admit that they'd hoped he was going to be the one to redeem Israel and lead his people to freedom. Most of all here, I think they're confused. They trusted Jesus and he let them down. Maybe you can relate to that. Have you ever pinned your hopes on someone and been disappointed? Has the church ever let you down in one way or another? We let each other down. I think... Justin alluded to that in our prayer of confession. We're only human after all. We seem to always disappoint one another in the end. And pretty soon we may find that we're well on the way to being cynical about all hope in relationships or community or institutions. Maybe you've served in leadership at one point or another and you know it's impossible To please everyone, I once heard someone say that leadership is the art of disappointing people at a rate they can stand. (laughs) Well, the disciples got it at a rate they couldn't stand. They got it all at once when Jesus was crucified. And so, grief and sorrow and devastation are part of this picture here, also. But on the road to Emmaus, there was more to the story. The women did not find his body. They saw angels who said he was alive. And then the men went, and they did not see Jesus. That last line, again, is humorous. It's loaded with irony. Did they not see Jesus? You sort of want to yell at them into the page. Hey, guys, he's right there in front of you. Jesus may have felt something similar too because now he changes his approach. No more innocent questions, no more Socratic method trying to draw things out of people like a good teacher. No, now he addresses their confusion with a different kind of pedagogy. He offers a generous dose of correction. He calls them foolish. He says they're slow to believe not because they hadn't figured out that the resurrection had taken place, but because they had misunderstood their Bibles and all the prophets had said. That little three-letter word in the English is crucial here, all. It's repeated. All the prophets had spoken, all the scriptures. Now, the two of these disciples were believers. They, they knew their Bibles, but they had failed to grasp the big picture they'd only believed one side of the story, the story of a Messiah who would come as a triumphant king, as a conqueror, as a ruler of his people, one whose powerful victory would usher in justice and would usher them into positions of prominence. They had viewed Jesus as that king, but then it had all gone horribly wrong. They were so caught up in their own idea of victory, they were in the end blind to the possibility that God's glory could come through suffering and death. Jesus had not for a moment hidden this from them. He hadn't sugarcoated this message or tried to make it easy for his followers. To the contrary, Jesus said, If you follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross too. You will suffer. In verse 26, he cuts to the heart of this message when he asks, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That's what they were missing. That's partly why they could not recognize him. And so Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, the fullness of the gospel about himself. So to be rooted in Christ means you have the presence of Jesus revealing the meaning of his word in the Bible. And when you grasp the fullness of that meaning of the gospel, the living reality of the good news of God's love shown to us in Jesus Christ, it changes everything. Probably my favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time is where he writes, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. There's an invitation to vision. And as God's light dawns on us, as we experience what these two disciples experience, Jesus with us, Through his word, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Through his death on the cross, Jesus insists that we change our minds about what's important in life. He illuminates every corner of our lives, and he leads us into vocation, our personal calling with the gifts he's given us, the place he's put us, the people we're with right now, our neighbors, our friends, our family, The opportunities we have to work, to serve, to dream what he might do individually, but even more together. And so Jesus explains the whole Bible to them, the all of the gospel, but they still don't recognize him. They were confused and he offered correction. So why don't they know him yet? Well, I think because their time had not yet come they needed a conversion but that only happens by the grace of god as a gift you cannot reason your way there you can read all you want you want you can you can discuss matters theological spiritual with people you can come to a worship service a lot of them but you can't get there without the grace of jesus intervening in your life. These two disciples did not grasp the truth in their own minds and then see Jesus because they'd figured it out. First, they needed God to open their eyes. Only then could they recognize Jesus. I love the French language. I've studied French since I was a kid. I love it for lots of reasons, but there's one particular wrinkle in French. Did you know that French has two words for knowing, to know something? Savoir and connaître. Savoir means knowing about something. So, je sais que les Toronto Maple Leafs sont beaucoup meilleurs à cause de Ryan (laughs) O'Reilly. I know that the Toronto Maple Leafs are a much better team because they traded for Ryan O'Reilly. I thought I'd get at least one amen. (laughs) But, moi, je ne connais pas Ryan O'Reilly. Me, myself, I don't know Ryan O'Reilly. I've never met him. So, savoir means knowing about something. Connaître refers to personal knowledge, knowing people. You could know a lot about God, about the Bible, but until God reveals himself to you, you won't know him. Maybe you were brought up with Christian faith. Maybe you've come to church for years, but Jesus is saying to you that you won't really know him. You will not recognize him until he gives you what you need, until he reveals himself. And the first step... To getting there is to ask. So being rooted in Christ means knowing Jesus personally. How does that happen? Well, here in Luke 24, it happens in the most ordinary way you could imagine. In a meal, by the breaking of bread. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened." Most of you have probably had one meal today already, and I'm guessing you might be anticipating the next one. When we eat, it's the very definition of mundane. It's everyday reality. And yet we know that meals are incredibly special also. Our most meaningful relationships with friends, with family, happen over meals, around tables. We had a particular joy last night eating as a family because Callum came home for reading week. And we mark that joy. We mark those moments of celebrating friendship, the love we share at mealtimes. Jesus makes it clear that He's with us right in the thick of those relationships. Not only in their joys, but also in their messiness, the conflict, the complications, the loneliness, in our everyday struggles. And so over a meal, he gives us, as he gave those two disciples, the grace we need so we can truly live. So out of this rootedness in Christ can come new growth. He also gives us the grace to leave behind our fear and our sorrow. He frees us up to forgive others and to love them. And so this meal on the road to Emmaus points to other meals. It points to the feeding of the 5,000 and our call as the church to come alongside to provide for those in need. It points to the Last Supper, And most of all, in the life of the church, to what we call communion. We are rooted in Christ as we receive his grace at the Lord's Supper. It really is this simple. We know Jesus in the breaking of the bread because he was broken for us. And so the church has lodged at the very center of its worship life together, Baptism and the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, communion, the Lord's Supper, forcing us to remember the cross. Though sometimes we might prefer to think of the Christian life as flourishing and prosperity without that. We know Jesus in the breaking of the bread because he was broken for us. Because he gave his life as the perfect once and for all sacrifice for our sins to deal with our selfishness and so that death could be defeated. It's only by his grace that he has chosen us and brought us onto this path, this journey together and opened our eyes so that we're not walking, not recognizing him, though he's always beside us. Now, if you don't see Jesus like that today, if you have not yet been captivated by a vision of who he is, if you haven't been moved and transformed by his love and his beauty, then I hope you will not leave here this morning without opening the door to him in some way. Maybe it's just asking him to make himself more real to you. So we've moved from confusion through correction to this amazing conversion we've witnessed. And now we come to the community of faith, a community that begins to form around the new hope and the new life that comes from being rooted in Christ who is risen. Why does Jesus suddenly disappear from their sight? Because he's going to be with them now in a different way. From now on, his presence will continue to be real, the most real thing in the universe, but it will be spiritual. It will no longer be in the flesh. And I love the way these two companions start to work it out together. Incidentally, did you know companion literally means with bread? People you know with bread. I love that. So these two companions who were walking on the road to Emmaus, they remember the presence of Jesus with them in the breaking of bread, and they unpack what happened. They're walking back to Jerusalem. Were our hearts not burning within us, they say. If you're rooted in Christ, it's never an individual experience. And so these two go and find other disciples, and they tell their story. That is their church right there. That is where the love will grow and the hope will flourish. That is where there will be healing, forgiveness, and restoration. Here at Courtright, we want to be rooted in Christ more and more. We want to recognize Jesus more and more among us. We want more of the companionship that happens when we read God's word and pray together and when Jesus Christ God's living word is with us, the hope of glory within us when our lives are hidden with Him, our identity. He is who we are. Jesus says, Where two or three are gathered, I am there. He is here now. He is with you as you gather in the small group you may be a part of, as you gather with a Christian friend or two for coffee. To pray, Henry Nowen writes that going home is a lifelong journey. As we walk home, we often realize how long the way is. But let us not be discouraged. Jesus walks with us and speaks to us on the road. When we listen carefully, we discover we are already home while on the way. I believe Jesus is walking with you today. He wants you to recognize that He's real and that He loves you. He knows you. He made you. And the way you're going to find yourself is by finding Him. He says to you and He says to all of us, I am the resurrection and the life. He went to the cross to give you ultimate hope hope that can change you, hope that you are changed, that your sins are forgiven and that death itself is defeated. Hope to meet every challenge you might face. That is where our mission as a church begins. But it doesn't end there. So I hope you'll be back next week. For now, I want us to take just a couple of minutes in silence to reflect on three questions that have been raised for us this morning. First of all, how are you rooted in Christ right now in your life? By paying attention to His Word. Second, how has the presence of Christ warmed your heart recently? How could you experience more of that fire, that light? And third, how are you working through these things with others in community? and in practice. So we'll just take a minute, and you can pray, or just simply consider that in whatever way you'd like.